0: Welcome to the Masters in Exercise podcast. This week, we're going to the space, and we talk with Dr. Laurie Plout-Snyder about how to exercise during space flight missions. Dr. Plout-Snyder is a professor of movement science and the dean of the University of Michigan School of Kinesiology. Previously, she was Lead Scientist for the Exercise Physiology and Countermeasures Project at the NASA-Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Her research focuses on studying how to counteract the negative effects of unloading on muscle and bone physiology that occur during space flights, and how to use this knowledge to protect the well-being of astronauts. During our conversation, we talk about how and why our bodies change during space flights, how long these changes last, after space missions, and if some of these changes can be irreversible. We talk about using exercise as a countermeasure to maintain the health of crew members and the main challenges when we need to train people in the space, for example, equipment. These and much more in a fascinating conversation that I hope you will enjoy. Without further ado, this is my conversation with doctor Plaut Plautz-Snyder. Uh, hello, doctor plout Plaut-Snyder. Thanks for participating in the podcast. I really appreciate it. The first question I want to ask you is how you became interested in studying exercise as a countermeasure to uh, protect human health during space flights.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and it's great to be here with you. It's it's a long story how I became interested, so I'll give you the the short version, which was I was a swimmer as a child and in college. And I always loved science. So that's what got me interested in exercise physiology from a really a very young age. The, the space flight aspect came after I was maybe in year three or four of university where I realized that exercise is a, is a huge physiologic insult and affects every system of the body. And that environmental physiology of all sorts, including spaceflight, just took that even to a new level. And when it became very fascinating to me to study both exercise and an environmental stressor at the same time, because the disruption to homeostasis was dramatic and the physiology got very interesting. Um, And then the realization that exercise could actually be used beneficially as a countermeasure for space flight just became intellectually fascinating. And then I couple that with uh, a very fortunate opportunity that I had um, as a PhD student to spend a summer at the Kennedy Space Center, essentially teaching uh, in an undergraduate student program about spaceflight physiology. Um, And this was really a long time ago before we had good in-flight exercise countermeasures. So that's how my interest really started.
0: I'm gonna ask you, uh, I guess, a difficult question to answer in in two or three minutes, but can you give us an overview of the changes that our body experiences when we have these prolonged spaceflights?
1: Yes. So there are two main categories of changes. First are the acute changes that occur when you go into space. And these are primarily related to fluid shifts. So when we're on Earth, we have the hydrostatic pressures of gravity pulling fluids down towards our feet. And and we notice this because our feet might be more swollen at the end of the day or after prolonged standing. Uh, when that is relieved, when you go into space flight, there's a headward fluid shift, which has some pretty dramatic effects. If you see a picture of an astronaut early in flight, their face is very puffy and swollen. There may be changes to their eyeglass prescription, a nasal congestion. um, and, And those are fairly quickly resolved the baroreceptors detect an increase in fluid, there's more urination, there's a loss of plasma volume, and after a few days that stabilizes. And then we get into the more long-term effects of spaceflight, which are very briefly, anything that sounds like deconditioning and disuse, then that's what happens. So Declines in muscle mass, strength, and endurance, declines in cardiorespiratory fitness, with a long enough time, declines in the slower changing tissues such as bone. Um, some very fascinating changes in balance and neurovestibular control because we rely on gravity for our otoliths and a lot of our kinesthetic senses.
0: Okay, but I guess that's why um, you use the bed rest model to to mimic the situation the, in the same situations that you're going to be exposed to in the space, but I'm going to ask you about these later. It is something that I think it's very interesting. I'm very interested in brains and as you were saying all these changes, for example, I was reading uh, papers about, you know, changes in brain volumes after uh, space flights so. The, the changes in general, the physiological changes that uh, astronauts or people you know in space flights they, they experience normally are directly associated to the duration of the spaceflight mission. So the longer the more the more changes or the more durable the changes are. Do we know how quickly our body starts to to change do,
1: do, do we have
0: the time frame of all these changes yet or we don't we don't know?
1: We don't have a very good time frame of the changes. The things that are more easily measured in space flight are the ones that we have a better time course for. But measuring the brain well usually involves MRI, obviously not available in space flight, and so we just have pre and post measures. And even those are confounded by the fluid shifts. So some things like... VO2 max, we do have a pretty good understanding of the time course of that change because that can be measured in flight.
0: Okay, okay. So are some of these changes irreversible? Even if we apply measures when they come back from the space flight, because I was reading some papers and really, even after one year or two years after, they still have some of these uh, adaptations, some of these changes. Are some of these changes you think irreversible?
1: That's a little bit of a controversial question. I don't. I don't think there are irreversible changes. Or putting it in the positive, I believe the changes are reversible with stays on the space station in low Earth orbit with the protective atmosphere of the the Earth, we're, we're fairly well protected from radiation exposure in low Earth orbit. And there is there are a lot of resources on the space station for countermeasures. So the, the next question would be, well, what if we left low Earth orbit? What if we went to Mars? What if the missions were much longer? And that's where I think there's much more uncertainty.
0: So now I want to ask you about mechanisms. And of course, we you mentioned microgravity, but you also mentioned radiation. So why our body has to go through all these changes when we are is, is it because the support unloading uh, due to microgravity exposure or is the radiation? What are the main sources to to trigger these changes in our body?
1: Yeah, that's also a tough question. The it depends, I'll say there are a lot of factors. So there's the obvious unloading of microgravity. There's also a change in diet, and fresh foods are less readily available. There are there's radiation exposure. There are social and emotional stressors of living in such a confined environment. Um, there are a lot of factors and. And you can't ever pull out and attribute a certain percentage of the changes to a certain one of these stressors. The one that gets the most publicity is, especially in the fitness and exercise area, is the unloading, because that is dramatic. And it becomes very fascinating to to try to figure out what exercise prescription And what is the most efficient exercise prescription that could prevent all or a lot of the the deconditioning changes that we see?
0: Okay. So this leads me to the next question, which is, again, bed rest. So you guys have been using bed rest as a model to kind of mimic what happens in a space, I guess, especially in relation to this unloading that you were talking about? Can you explain why exactly you use this model and how valid this model is to to mimic the situations that uh, people will will be exposed to in the space?
1: Right, so the reason we use the model is just a very simple and practical one. It's not all that glamorous. And that is that it's really hard to do space flight studies because there aren't very many people who fly in space. You can't select who's in the study, like the selection criteria is difficult. You can probably study one or two people per year, just in the, the practicality of it. And it is virtually impossible to have a really proper scientific control of the environment. So it's really, really hard to and expensive, and very low end, and very poor experimental control to do spaceflight studies. Bed rest, on the other hand, because it's conducted in a hospital, you can control the study beautifully. You can control the study better than you can control a regular training study because the people are living there, you know exactly what they eat, when they sleep, everything. You can enroll a relatively large number of people. It may sound funny, but it is relatively inexpensive relative to space flight. Yeah. You you pay them well, but it's still a lot cheaper than space flight. You can enroll more people. You can enroll certain cohorts of people. You could have several arms of a study and several groups. You could have a group that does no exercise. You can't have that in space flight. You can manipulate the diet. It just a lot of really practical considerations. Um, how valid of a model is it? There have been some really cool studies looking at that. And, and I'll say that the unloading aspect is, is very valid and very good because you can document the, the unloading and you can look at the time course of change in, in muscle mass or VO2 max and, and show that it's pretty similar to, to space flight. But it is lacking the radiation exposure. Um, Most, I haven't actually seen a a bed rest study that used a space flight constrained diet, gave them no fresh food and and things like that. You could do that, but I haven't seen that anyone's actually done that. Um, So it's not a perfect model. I'll say it's a great model for exercise related studies where unloading is the elephant that you're dealing with. It is not a great model for the immune system or some of the other systems for which the unloading is not the biggest insult.
0: What do we know about exercise? I mean, is it a good countermeasure to to prevent the changes in body structure and function that we experience during these space flights? And if so, what kind of exercise is the best one? Or do we know... I'm going to ask you about the FIT principles and how the FIT principles that we use here can be applied to space. But can you answer the first question?
1: Yeah, this is probably my favorite question, because being an exercise physiologist, I'll start with in about 2000, well, maybe about eight years ago, the space station got new exercise equipment. A new treadmill, it's a Woodway commercial treadmill adapted for space flight. I I point that out because it means that the belt is wide enough and goes fast enough to get a real run in. Previous versions of treadmills were not robust enough to have what we would call a proper exercise prescription. Uh, there's a cycle that's that's been up there for a long time. That's great, um, the real workhorse. And then there's a new resistance exercise machine called the ARED that allows for about twenty or thirty different resistance exercises with loads that one would expect to induce adaptations. So that provided for the first time ever the opportunity to study what, what we would call normal exercise prescriptions in spaceflight to see if exercise alone or in combination with a good diet could prevent these, these losses. And that's actually the reason why I went to Johnson Space Center oh, it's quite a while ago now. Um, were to do those studies because it, w- it was finally time to do space flight exercise prescription studies.
0: Okay. So the hardware is not a problem, isn't it? I mean, I wanted to ask you about the practical challenges when exercising people. I'm familiar with the yo-yo system, for example, that I think started with, with the, you know, people from Sweden Pertons, yeah. and all these yeah. guys, I was very familiar because I published on eccentric exercise too. I was a muscle guy before I became a, a brain guy, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, so it seems that the, the equipment is not the problem. What are the main barriers to train people in, in the space? Besides, or, or you still think that the equipment is a challenge? It still a challenge and we need to develop better equipment to train them.
1: Well, I think the equipment that's on the space station is, is pretty solid. It's pretty good. It doesn't break down often. And you can do good exercise on it. Mm-hmm. The challenge, I think, hardware-wise is that that equipment is heavy. It takes up a lot of space and the vehicles that we're looking at to go out of low earth orbit are not nearly as large as the space station. And so we're going to need smaller, more compact exercise equipment. Um, and so the flight. Plot- For instance, something like the flywheel that you mentioned or other solutions. So I think for the space station, we're in really good position with exercise equipment and exercise prescriptions now. The hardware challenge will be the next step.
0: Okay, okay. Um, So let's talk about exercise prescription now and the FIT principles, you know them well, frequency, intensity, time, type. Will the same principles apply to space? I mean, do we need to use the same uh, periodization of exercise, if you want or training? Do we need to use the same frequency, the same intensity? Do you think we can still use the fit principles that we develop here to train them, or you think the response, the physiological response will be different?
1: I think the principles are are good in any environment, but it's the the details of the principles. So do we need the same frequency? Frequency is important. But we were very interested in what is the minimum frequency, intensity, duration that can be used? Because in space flight, it is expensive to spend your time exercising because it's part of the, the duty day. Um, When when crew members are exercising, it means they can't be doing the maintenance on the space station or the scientific experiments that they're there for. And we don't have to think about this on Earth, but the more you exercise, the more CO2 you produce, which puts more of a load on the CO2 scrubbing system, the more you need to eat which makes more up mass, the more you need to drink, which puts more strain on the urine reclamation system. And so there's a lot of logistical overhead associated with exercising in space. So one really important question is what is the most efficient exercise prescription that we can do in space? Because we would like to maximize the health benefits and minimize the time. And some would argue, I'm not one of those people, but some would argue we might want to minimize the intensity so that people don't get hurt or burned out or unwilling to do the exercises. So, so that gives a, the principles are good, but how you implement the principles becomes um, very important. And we used a set of. really old, I'll say studies from from the 1980s to where they used ground-based training studies to manipulate, they trained a lot of people and then they selectively reduced frequency, intensity, duration, and had separate maintenance groups to see who would do the best. And then we tried to apply that to preventing loss. So that's the other fascinating twist on this is if a training study shows benefits on the ground would that benefit be big enough to then apply it to space and say it would prevent loss
0: i found fascinating that you are an exercise physiologist but i guess you have to think about even how much waste your exercise will produce no that's that's really cool, I think, because you have to really see the big picture and maybe have the perfect intervention, but then people say, well, this machine is too heavy, we cannot carry this machine, it's super expensive. So you need to find another way to prescribe this exercise. So
1: yes, the other part that took some adjusting to from, from my perspective was the the goal is to keep the crew members fit enough to perform their mission tasks, which could include some emergency procedures if that became necessary. So I was constantly faced with questions such as, well, how strong do you really need to be? Do we need to maintain strength at pre-flight levels? What if you're very, very strong? You know, imagine a power lifter who's going to fly in space. We probably don't need to maintain him or her at that competition level. Um, we need a, a minimum level of strength, a minimum level of endurance, a minimum level of aerobic fitness. And, and what is that level? And we don't really know for sure. We have some ideas. But it's another very interesting question which I think is, is very important for exercise prescription, but sometimes gets overlooked. And that is, what is the goal of your exercise prescription? And often the goal is very vague and arbitrary, to be healthy, to be strong. Um, but in some of these occupational settings, and I might argue even in some clinical settings, it would be better to have a specific goal. That is, maybe for older people, we'd like you to be strong enough to rise out of a chair without assistance, walk at a certain speed. Um, For astronauts, we would like you to have this strength, this aerobic fitness. Um, I think ventilatory threshold is a really important goal for astronauts because they do a lot of very long submaximal work in the EVAs. So they might be out there at five or six hours at 50%. And so I would argue that having a ventilatory threshold at 75 or 80% of max is more important than what the max is. And so its I, I think it's really important in exercise prescription overall to ha- to be able to try to set some specific goals so that you can make your prescription precise enough to to achieve the goals. And whether the goals are improving your everyday life or living independently or having the occupational performance to be an astronaut or a firefighter or whatever, I think that's a missing piece out of the FIT principles. (laughs) So in one of the FIT principles that we applied very successfully with space flight, was that frequency could be reduced quite a lot if intensity and duration were maintained.
0: Because we're talking about efficiency a lot. And obviously, when I think about efficiency, I think about high intensity interval training, no? because we've been sold this idea that, you know, with 30 minutes of exercise, that's fine. You, you don't need more than that. And you published one paper recently uh, in which you compare heat versus a more conventional training program in uh, International Space Station crew members uh, during long duration spaceflight. space flight. So I wanna ask you, do you think that this type of training which really primes intensity and it's quite time efficient could be a potential solution to train these, uh, these people?
1: For sure, for sure. And one of the things we did, we call it the sprint exercise prescription. And when we started this 10 years ago, it was really very novel and perhaps some even considered kind of risky to have astronauts 300 miles up in the air exercising at maximal intensity. Now it's pretty commonplace. And one of the things that you really have to think about with space flight is all of the organ systems. So, so often the, the papers that we read are really targeting one or two organ systems, muscle, what is the proper resistance, what is the best optimal resistance training program for something or another, or cardiorespiratory. But with space flight, you have to think about both of those. But you also need to think about bone. How do we best load the bone? And to a lesser extent, balance and neuromuscular performance. And so we're really training a jack of all trades, master of none, and there are some known discrepancies or interferences with aerobic and resistance training. And so the other really fascinating piece is how do you put those together? how do you periodize them when do you do aerobic when do you do resistance which one is influencing the bone and and how and so we were very intentional about developing this sprint exercise prescription and going back to your hit question we had three different interval protocols each of which has been shown independently in the literature to affect or benefit different parts of the cardiovascular system. So, we had a very short 20 second interval, which has been shown to have a lot of peripheral cardiovascular benefits. So, muscle enzymes, capillary density, you know, the most peripheral parts of, of the cardiovascular system. A two minute interval which is sort of in the middle and been shown to improve VO2 max. And then a four minute interval, which has actually been used even with some heart patients that is shown to have more robust adaptations, say at the heart improvements in cardiac output and stroke volume and things like that. And, And we did those one each, each week. So like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or one of the days you do the 30-second interval, then two days later you do the two-minute interval, two days later you do the four-minute interval, and a rotation with the goal of targeting different parts of the cardiovascular system.
0: Okay, okay, that's very interesting. Uh, I guess you know the paper by Book Eight, uh, in a sports medicine, because he really, it's a sports medicine review paper, and he really plays with these uh, different intervals of high intensity interval training or, sp- or spring training and he has a beautiful figure uh, showing how depending on the interval that you use you tap on different systems and, and he explains precisely what you what you were explaining how you know when you use longer intervals you seem to affect more the cardiac response. When you go more uh, with short intervals, it's more neuromuscular function, also mitochondrial volume, and all these kind of things. So yeah, it's it's very
1: interesting. And then I guess the one other thing I want to tell you about is we then had the resistance exercise on the alternate days. Okay. To try to avoid some of the the contradictions between the two, Uh, and so we. We went from six days a week of resistance exercise, which was the normal standard care, down to three days per week of resistance exercise on the alternate days that they were not doing the intervals and then increased the intensity of the, the resistance exercise.
0: Okay. So, so this, this model could be a potential like prescription paradigm, you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. And then the last piece that was very spaceflight specific that would not need to be implemented on Earth, but I want to tell you about it because it's interesting for the spaceflight, was that there's mostly rodent data that suggests that the bone very quickly mechanosensitizes. And so that in order to to impact the bone, what we need to have is frequent loading. It doesn't have to be long, but more frequent loading. And so what we did on the days that the crew members were not doing the the hit intervals, they did both a resistance exercise session and a, a more relaxing cardiovascular session separated by four to eight hours. And we really wanted it separated by eight hours for the benefit of the bone. But in the practicality of scheduling it, we couldn't, we couldn't do that. So four hours was the more, the more realistic spacing. And that extra cardiovascular workout was 30 minutes at we told them not to exceed 75% of their max heart rate. Um, we didn't think it was necessary from a health perspective, but Exercise is also a behavioral health countermeasure, and the crew members really enjoy it. And they like to put on music and just go for a walk or a light run and use it as a way to for stress relief. So when we tried to to remove that from the schedule, we got a lot of opposition from the the crew members themselves. And so we essentially used that as a bone loading.
0: Okay, okay. So they wanted to exercise. Okay, Uh, so where do you see this uh, field evolving? What are the main questions that you haven't been able to answer yet that you wanna answer in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years?
1: How to go to Mars. (laughs) And right now that is more of an exercise hardware problem than it is an exercise prescription problem because this sprint exercise prescription we think is good enough. Could it be better? Could it be optimal? Yes, always, things can always be better, but we're getting good enough results for cardiovascular muscle bone with this exercise prescription. In the bed rest studies, we did conduct this same sprint exercise prescription using a flywheel device that was modified so that it could be both a rower and a resistance exercise machine. And that group did very well too. So we think we've shown that this sprint exercise prescription is a good prescription even on different hardware. So the real question is what exercise hardware could go to Mars what would fit in the vehicle, what would hold up or be able to be repaired, what wouldn't take too much power, In you know, all the practical considerations of, of spaceflight exercise hardware. And you, I know you mentioned the flywheel and you're familiar with that one. It's a great mode of exercise, but it has a lot of complications in terms of the the safety profile and the um, very quickly spinning moving parts and, and practical flight implications. So I think right now that's the biggest challenge. And we still have a lot of unknowns about the vehicle that would go to Mars.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you one question. Um, do you think that neuromodulation uh, brain stimulation, muscle stimulation strategies could somehow. I know that obviously the, the type of adaptations won't be the same. Uh, and it, you, know, with active exercise, there are some things that you can trigger that you will never trigger with either brain stimulation or muscle stimulation. But do you think these countermeasures could have some some use to to prevent uh, the decline, for example, in muscle mass or or brain function? Maybe not an expert in neuromodulation, but uh, Do you think they have a place in in this repertoire of of, uh, strategies to maintain health during a space flight?
1: Maybe. And the reason I say maybe is it's sort of a a cautious response. You can't elicit a strong enough muscle contraction with stimulation that isn't so painful that people are willing to, to handle it. And so I don't think it can ever replace actual high-intensity contractions for the maintenance of strength, for instance. But it could have a role in rehab or in um, maintaining postural muscles that perhaps like to see a lot of frequent stimulation that doesn't need to be a high-intensity contraction. Uh, If there were were a period of time where crew members could not do normal exercise, things like stimulation or blood flow restricted exercise where you could have much lower intensity contractions, but still elicit some some better than usual benefits. Um, Stimulation, compression garments, you know, a lot of these what I would call supplemental exercises, I think, could be really good tools in the toolbox if there was a situation where someone couldn't do proper exercise. Proper
0: exercise. Okay. Okay. This is great. Uh, I just have one last question. Um, can, can you define success both professionally and personally? I mean, I know it's a personal question, but I, my students are listening to this, and I think it's important for them to to hear from you guys uh, how you define success professionally and personally. It can be inspiring sometimes for, for them to, to know.
1: Yeah, it depends so much. So, so starting out with professional success, it depends a lot on what your job is and where you are in your career trajectory. So I would say for students, professional success would start with graduating. Doing well in your class, (laughs) graduating, moving to the next stage, whether that be the first job or graduate school or a postdoc. um, I think it's really important to set some achievable goals and and define success for yourself, depending where you are. Um, Right now, I'm spending more time being a dean at Michigan than I am doing research. And so what I would call success professionally this semester is very different than what I would call success with developing a a countermeasure for spaceflight. And quite honestly, developing the countermeasure for spaceflight was more straightforward than helping a university navigate COVID and all of the the surprises and the uncertainty and the trade-offs and and so I I think you really need to set some some goals that are sort of like my philosophy with the exercise prescription you need to set some goals that are specific and achievable then be compassionate with yourself if you don't meet the goal because if you don't meet it the first time there's another time and you never know what will be thrown at you um, so I think now more than ever, that's a really important message is self-compassion and it's important to have goals, but not to be, not to define yourself by whether those goals are met or not, which then leads you, me into the second part of your question, which was personal success to me means, are you happy? And there are a lot of different ways to be happy with your your social health, your emotional health, your physical health, all of this, your professional success that it's multifaceted. And I would encourage the students to really take care with all of those facets of of their life because there'll always be one or two of them that aren't going well, and another one or two that are going well. And so it's really good to have a balanced portfolio.
0: Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, In academia, it's very difficult to, as you know, to have a very balanced and not to set the bar based on your professional goals and then forget about the rest. And it's a big mistake that I think everybody, I think we we, we, we all make this mistake at, at, at some points of our career, I will say. It's very difficult to find this balance, and for the students, I guess it's the same. And I agree with you. The situation that we're living now with the COVID—I mean, you need to think really about the priorities and uh, be being compassionate—is is another one that maybe with yourself and with the others. Uh, that's something that you, I think, I've learned. I knew, but I learned even more so during this period.
1: Yeah, and it's, I think we're at a really interesting period because we're learning how to live with this as an endemic. Part of our life, and and that's a little bit tricky. It
0: is. It is very tricky. It had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I hope you enjoyed too. I hope you had fun.
1: Yes, I did. It's a lot of fun. It's a topic that I love to talk about, and I don't get to talk about every day now. Okay. So uh, it was a lot of fun for me too.
0: Okay. Thank you so
1: much. Yep. Thank you.